Welcome to the Behavior Groups Podcast. My name is Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. We interview interesting people in order to unlock insights into behavioral science and how we can apply them to work and life. Today's show features Brian Ahern. Brian is the Chief Influence Officer at Influence People LLC and one of only 20 Cialdini Method Certified Trainers in the world. Whoa. In the world. 20. Brian brings a wealth of experience and real-world knowledge on how to apply influence to our lives. We were excited to bring Brian into the Behavior Group studio for an in-depth conversation on priming, influence, and ethics. Yeah, Brian outlined the six principles of influence, liking, reciprocity, authority, social proof or consensus, consistency, and scarcity, all as identified by Robert Cialdini. Brian brings in a number of personal stories from how he met Cialdini to influencing his daughter on how to mow the grass. That's a good influence. It's a great story, too. And how he creates his personal priming playlist. Say that three times fast. Personal priming playlist. Personal priming playlist. Personal priming playlist. (laughs) I did it. You did it. (laughs) Of course, Tim, you made us sure that we ended up on music in which we talked about Coldplay and Frank Sinatra. That was a good, that's a good mix. It's always a good, always, always a good thing to end on, on music. So, but listeners, before you settle back and listen in, we would like to ask you three favors. One is to subscribe to Behavior Groups, either in iTunes or whatever pod listening service you have. The more subscribers that we get, the better that this show gets ranked so others can find it and learn from it. And on that note, please share this with someone that you think might like it. It's easy. Just click the share button on your on your app or copy the link and forward it to a friend. Finally, we would love to hear from you. Yeah. Let us know how you like it or what you don't like about the show. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Well, I'm, I'm more interested in the good, <laughs> just FYI. But send us a note. We'd love to hear from you. Yes. And so... As you're sitting back and listening to the podcast in your comfy chair, in your house, or wherever you are, please take a minute to subscribe, share, and comment. So now, without further ado, please enjoy our conversation with Brian Ahern. Brian Ahern, welcome to the Behavioral Grooves Podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. We are awfully glad to have, have you here, bright and early on this crisp fall morning here. In, in the beautiful Behavioral Grooves uh, studio. Studio, yeah. exactly, exactly. Uh, so we want to start with a couple of um, we want to start with a couple of speed round questions. Okay. So Monet or Michelangelo? Monet. Mm. Uh, bicycle or unicycle? Bicycle. Up the mountain or down the mountain? Up the mountain. All right. If you had to pick to use a persuasion tactic, would it be reciprocity or authority? Reciprocity. All right. Okay. <laughs> okay. That's a great. Oh, oh, go ahead. So, 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 why reciprocity as opposed to authority? What, what's, uh, what's your your component there? What, I, where does that go? I see reciprocity as a bigger opportunity to be helpful to somebody. Okay. If I can find out what would be genuinely beneficial for them, and I can do something to help them, and I think building a relationship is the key to moving any further. Do you think reciprocity is um, is closely linked to the sort of that tribal social norming thing where we want to feel like somebody's got our back? Is is it is it and is it that primal? I uh, do I do think? think it is. I think most of the principles that I talk about, if you look at evolution, they're what helped us survive. And I think that when it comes to something like reciprocity, 
people innately understand that we're all better off if we help each other. You know, if the three of us help each other, we can get a lot more done than we can as individuals. And so whether they're consciously or subconsciously, I think it triggers that and it makes people much more willing to reciprocate and help you in return. Yeah. Yeah. So Brian, tell us a little bit about your background. So um, how a, you are a Cialdini certified, help me understand exactly. It's a, called Cialdini method, certified method. trainer, yeah. Okay, so help us understand a little bit of your background. You've, you told the story, it's pretty fascinating, so. Well, I started in insurance out of college. I thought sales was a bunch of BS <laughs> until I. A lot well, of people it, do. It, yeah. it, it pretty it, much is, yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I think and, you were right. <laughs> and then I met somebody, an individual I've worked for, for quite a while, and I learned more in a year about sales than I had in the first 10 years in the business, and I thought, you know what, you can do this ethically, and, and it does make a difference. So I was doing some sales training, and over the course of time, there was an individual who had worked in the sales department, came down one day, she was studying for her master's at Ohio State University, gave a video to my boss and I, and it was Robert Cialdini presenting at Stanford. Okay. And I watched the video and the light bulb comes on. Oh my gosh, this explains all the psychology that underlies the sales training and sales techniques that we teach people. And, and how long ago was this, by the way? That was, I think, 2002, either late 2002 yeah. or early 2003. So cool. a good bit of time ago. And I started using that video in some sales training. What appealed to me about Cialdini was the the science, I'm an analytical person, and it gave me confidence that I could step forward and put this out there, and it was believable. And then the ethics of it. He yeah. was very big on using this in non-manipulative ways to get people to do things. So I signed up for Stanford's marketing materials because it was a great video. I got some other videos, and one day I see their new marketing, and it has Cialdini's picture, and it says, call it influence, persuasion, or even manipulation, right in the headline. Wow. <laughs> wow. I thought there were supposed to be really smart people at Stanford. But <laughs> there, was, there was one person who wasn't so smart, their copyright person at that time. And so I felt compelled to address it. And I emailed Stanford and I said, I don't know anybody who wants to be manipulated, nor do I know anybody who wants to be known as a good manipulator. That one word cannot be helping your sales, but it really could be hurting. And I didn't hear from Stanford, but sometime later my phone rings and it's a representative from Robert Cialdini's office calling to thank me on his behalf because Stanford was changing the marketing of his video because of the email <laughs> I sent. The power of an email, it is, it's amazing, so. Yeah, and I look at my life sometimes, I think a simple decision here and there it totally changed the course. If I hadn't sent that email, it's a guarantee I would not be talking to you two today. Yeah. And I wouldn't be on the path that I am. Well, what was interesting after that is she said, you know, Dr. Cialdini travels the world, and if state auto insurance ever needs a guest speaker, he'd be happy to talk to you. And I said, well, I sit next to the person who books our speakers. Let me transfer you. And summer of 2004, Dr. Cialdini was out several times to address insurance agents. I went through the two-day Principles of Persuasion workshop, immediately saw the application for our managers because they have to work through people. And I saw a bigger picture down the road that we could use this as a sales training opportunity if we recrafted it a little bit for our independent insurance agents that represent us. It took me about three years to convince my boss to persuade him, but I'm a pretty <laughs> persistent person. And so finally, after three years, I got the, the okay. And in early 2008, I went through the certification process with uh, Influence at Work and have been doing training on his behalf ever since and started my own company outside of state auto called influence people and have been doing things there. And 
I, I've told people that I feel really fortunate that my passion and my vocation line up, that I, I love reading about and learning about and thinking about all of these things related to influence and persuasion, and then, oh, by the way, I can go into work and put them all into practice. Well, you talked about two things when you said the, the components that Cialdini that fascinated you or, or drew you to that was obviously the, the background in science that, that he brings, and I think that's a really important factor. I think that's yeah. uh, one of the things that Tim and I both really appreciate, uh, just the research that he brings forth and then taking that research in such a way and then packaging it, I, may not be the right word, but mm -hmm. being able to put uh, a way of talking about it and bringing it into a focus that really says, look, here's what the research says and here is how that actually impacts people. And then as you mm -hmm. also talked about the ethics and the ethics is a huge piece and we have talked multiple times on, on the podcast about different ethical issues. And I think persuasion, just that term, like you said, manipulation is even a worse term, but, mm -hmm. but even persuasion can be sometimes seen as, as manipulative and the ethics around it mm -hmm. uh, I think are really important. But for those listeners that uh, may not be familiar with Cialdini's work, can you talk a little bit about the the principles of persuasion from his first book, and then he also has a second book called Presuasion, and I'd like you to talk a little bit about that too, and then make sure we come back to how we apply that, not just to not just to work, but life, as, but we, life. as we talk about in, that's right. That's what we do, apply behavioral okay. science to work and life. Okay, so Robert Cialdini was a Regents professor at Arizona State University for 30 plus years. He gained notoriety, I think it was 1985, when Influence, Science, and Practice came out. It also mm -hmm. came out under a different publisher, I think, The Psychology of Persuasion. And, and sales weren't great early on, but all of a sudden there was a turning point where people started to latch onto it and realize this could really, really make a difference in terms of my interaction, whether at work or at home. And in that book, he put a framework around a lot of psychology that up to that time was probably all over the place. And he coined the term the principles of persuasion or principles of influence. And the principles that he laid out in that book were principle of liking, that people generally will say yes to those they know and like. The principle of reciprocity, that we feel a natural obligation to give back to people who first give to us. The principle of authority, which says we will more easily follow the lead of somebody that we view as an expert. Then mm -hmm. there was what we call the principle of consensus or probably better known as social proof that our behavior is heavily impacted by what we observe, what we learn about other people, what they're doing, thinking, how they're behaving. And then there's a the principle of consistency which tells us we feel this internal psychological pressure but an external social pressure to be consistent in what we say and what we do and finally, the sixth principle that was in the book was scarcity. And that alerts us to the reality that we tend to want more of what we can have less of. When mm -hmm. we think something's going away, all of a sudden there's, oh, I, I want that. And so these are the six principles that, that he popularized. And almost every interaction that you have with other people, at least one of these principles, if not multiple, are coming into play. And what I do is I teach people about what those principles are and then try to open their eyes to the opportunities that are probably out there right now that they just have never seen because they don't have eyes, they don't have the vocabulary for it, and they just miss it. Yeah. I, well, and and you, you use a workshop. Mm -hmm. to, to, so, yes. so it's more than just um, uh, a little bit of education. Uh, it's, it's actually some application then as well, right? I mean, you actually lead people into the process of this is how we're going to apply it. Yes. 
because if you don't do that, it would be like me trying to describe to you how an engine works. That doesn't mean you can fix the engine. And just telling people about these principles, most are not going to naturally gravitate to figure out how to actually use them. So when we do the two-day workshop, we go in depth. We spend more than an hour on each of the principles. And we flesh out what we call activators. What is it that causes a principle to start operating? What are amplifiers? What makes it stronger? And then I put in a component for sales application because most of the time I'm working with salespeople. But throughout that, we have group activities. We usually have an exercise at the end that's very specific about how would you apply the particular principle in this situation. So people really get immersed in each of these six principles. And then the second half of day two is entirely focused on them working in small groups with the material. You've talked about the nuances in some of these. What do you think are the most, what are the most common stumbling blocks for people who are going through the workshop? Letting go of preconceived ways of doing things. When you explain the principle of reciprocity, for example, that if I give to you, you'll feel an obligation to want to do something in return. And a lot of studies show that I don't have to give very much to, to trigger in you a desire to want to help me. In business, we're steeped in rewards. And so people will get that confused. They'll hear reciprocity, think they have it, and they fall back to a reward mentality, which is, I always say reciprocity is, I have, will you? But rewards are, if you, I will, mm. right? So I have done this thing, Tim. Would you do me a favor and help me out? Versus, Kurt, if you help me out, I'll do this for you, right? It's more of a negotiation. Right, And right. And I'll give you a personal example. My daughter hates when I tell this, but <laughs> Sorry. She, she won't listen. Sorry, yes, yes. she <laughs> probably won't be listening, but yeah. maybe. Maybe if she's bad, I'll force her to listen. <laughs> uh, so when she was about 14, she's turning into a young woman, you know, two-hour showers, boys, all that stuff. The last thing she wants to do on a hot summer day is help dear old dad by cutting the grass. Mm -hmm. And I knew that if I would take a reward approach, if I would have said, Abigail, if you will cut the grass when I want you to, I will give you a raise in your allowance. So that would have been a reward negotiation. Yep. I think she either would have said, no thanks dad, I don't like money that much. Or she would have said, how much? And tried to negotiate me up. And that neither of those were gonna be acceptable. And the worst thing that I could have done, I think as a parent is say, fine, now you'll do it for free because I'm your dad and I said so. Yeah. yeah. That's not the kind of relationship I have with her and it wasn't the kind I wanted going forward. So I, a little forethought, we were driving home one day and I said, Abigail, I'm going to give you a raise in your allowance, $10 a week. And she said, why? And I told her some things I was genuinely proud of. Yeah. But I also knew it would make it easier when I needed her help. So a few weeks later, I get ready to travel, and I said, Abigail, I'm going out of town. Would you mind cutting the grass for me? And I could see everything that was about to come in her body language. She's about to tell me how much she hates cutting the grass. Please don't make me do it. And this is instantaneous. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're watching this real time. Yeah. yeah I, lo I love that. And so I just looked at her, and I said, wait a minute, Abigail. I just gave you a raise in your allowance, and I didn't ask you to do anything. Can't you help me? She thinks for a moment. She goes, okay. And there was never any resistance after that to cutting the grass. She doesn't like it, but, but she realizes, Dad does nice things for me. Even if I don't really want to do this, I should do that because of what he's done for me. And yeah. my wife was very good about reinforcing. She understands these principles, and she really reinforces it well, too. But I think that's just a classic example of how a parent can maybe avoid friction by doing these things, you know, beforehand and, and engaging that psychology that's natural for all people. So, 
So this status quo bias, this, this, this fact that people come into the class with these preconceived notions is, is one of the biggest challenges that you have to overcome. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, how? What about in the nuances? I want to get back to this this idea that you talked about. So the nuances of application are really important. Can you give us an example of uh, of, of of the new of a nuance that is often missed? Sure. Principle of consistency. It's predicated on people that will want to be consistent with what they've said and done, and. The mistake that people make all the time thinking that they're engaging this principle is by telling somebody what to do. So if I tell you what to do, Kurt, you know what you're supposed to do, but you've not committed to it, right? Right. And, and the, <laughs> the biggest takeaway that I tell people is stop telling, start asking. If you tell people what to do, they've not committed. But when you ask and they have said yes, they want to be consistent first and foremost for themselves because they feel good about themselves when they keep their word, but they also feel better too when they know that other people see that they keep their word. It's an interesting component that that telling piece also has uh, that potential of the rebound of saying, wait, you're telling me to do this? I'm gonna now not do it just because right. you're trying telling, to yeah. you know, um, put your pressure on me to do it. Uh, and then interestingly, Tim, with the goal component, and we have found, uh, and Tim has done a lot of work in goal setting, and just in when people are able to choose their own goals, mm -hmm. there is a stronger motivation to achieve those goals. And obviously, it right. seems to, to be that some of this consistency uh, uh, principle is coming to play Absolutely. in that per perspective. In, in, in the goal setting side, consistency as well uh, is part of the commitment. And then, and then another part of it is, is that self-efficacy, mm -hmm. you know, that I said so. And, and so I, I feel like there might be an underlying element mm -hmm. to, cons to consistency. The ask versus tell uh, comes into, I get to express my own belief about this. I'm, right. I'm, I'm answering a question. I'm, I'm responding with something that I believe rather than you, you just telling me what to do. Yeah, and that's one of, the, one of the factors that we call an amplifier is that when, mm. when somebody has a voluntary choice, they're more committed to it versus being told and realizing they have to do it. There is a sales trainer named Tom Hopkins wrote a book called How to Master the Art of Selling. And I went to his boot camp a couple of times. And here's a great example of learning something in sales, but then going, oh, here's the underlying psychology. <laughs> he has a phrase and he says, when you say it, they doubt it. But when they say it, they believe it. The underlying, the underpinning of that is the consistency, right? Yeah. If somebody verbalizes something, they own that more than being told. And as I work with salespeople in particular, I, I said, it doesn't matter what your benefits are. You don't want to be a walking billboard. You need to ask a question to find out if that's important to the person. And if they say, yes, it's important, then you can step in and say, that's what we do. And now they now it means more <laughs> yeah. as opposed to just pushing that out. But so that's a, that's a tough one, though, because even with the agency I worked with this week, when I would ask them, what are, you know, why would somebody want to do business with you or your agency? They had a lot of good reasons, but they weren't framing them in a question. And their good reasons might not be the good reasons to somebody else. Framing is such an important piece in mm -hmm. all of the psychology of, of getting people to do or think um, in ways that mm -hmm. you are, you know, in, in just in communication across mm -hmm. the board. So yeah. uh, 
I want to go into a little bit about uh, Cialdini's latest book. Okay. Uh, it came out, what, two years, two or three It'd be two, years ago? Two years ago this fall, yeah. Yeah, Pre-suasion. so Pre-Suasion, mm-hmm. uh, which I read and absolutely, uh, again, fell in love with. We saw him last fall at a, at a conference, uh, mm-hmm. and he talked about that. Uh, help us understand a little bit about what Pre-Suasion is. I know you just went and, and have done some extensive training around that mm-hmm. as well, so... So persuasion is all about how do I set up the moment before I ever even make the ask. And, and there are so many things that, that impact somebody's mindset that they're completely unaware of. And they would deny it, I think, if, if you would say, do you think this impacted your, your thinking? As an example, something that he shared, when an individual is asking, randomly asking women for their phone number, I mean, so this nice looking guy strikes up a conversation with a woman, and it leads to asking for the phone number. They looked at w- whether he was standing in front of a bakery, a shoe shop, or a flower shop. Now, most people would say that's probably totally irrelevant. It's just a guy asking a random woman for her phone number. And yet, when they stood in front of the flower shop, the results were twice as high. It was about a quarter of the time he was able to get a phone number from, from the ladies, where it was like 10 and 12% between the bakery and the shoe shop. And the priming on that, the, the persuasive part is, Flowers trigger thoughts of romance. Mm-hmm. And, and while the woman might not be thinking, oh, flowers, romance, it's there in the back of the mind. There's so many things, and you guys know this, that in your subconscious that drive your behavior. And that's a simple thing about, okay, if I want to get to a better result, how do I set up a situation so it makes it easier for that person to say yes? Yeah, it's, it's, it's activating those neural networks that are already existing in our brain. So as you said, flowers, mm-hmm. romance is a pre-existing neural connection that, that most people have. And so by just standing in front of that flower shop, those neural connections are activated, even if, as you said, it's at a subconscious level. And so therefore, that makes that transition to all right, I will give you my phone number to be that much more likely to, to happen. Yeah, right. that, that's one of our favorites. Uh, that and uh, Gary Latham's work on, um, on the uh, watermark uh, for, the, for the fundraisers uh, is, is another one that's just... Yeah, the, just the picture with the call the center and the women the running center. through yeah. And, yeah, it's just and, so great. and the different things. So, um, but with that, um, you know, there has been in, in the social... Uh, priming research, there has been a lot of pushback over the recent years because of replicability issues, um, you know, and there's been a lot of that, particularly with some of Barg's work on, you know, walking down the hallway by being primed with having old, uh, you know, right. things of Florida and elderly and different things. And Scrambled his, sentence yep, tests. And his, yeah. his uh, initial research indicated that after people had that, they actually walked down the hallway slower than people who were in the control group, mm-hmm. thus kind of that, that mental age component, and, and all of the research hasn't been able to replicate that. Um, have you had any, any work in, in thinking through, you know, what I loved about this is that these, there's a, there's a predominance of evidence in some of these others. Um, and particularly the work with Latham and, and some of those others. But um, has that been approached at all or addressed in, in any of the work that you guys are doing? Or um, not, not to my knowledge. I mean, okay. we, didn't, we didn't talk about that. Um, most of what he, what Cialdini talks about isn't his direct research in persuasion. It's a, kind of like uh, with influence, science, and practice. He didn't discover the six principles of influence. Right. 
but he pulled together and put into a framework, and then some of it is supported by research that he's been involved with too. Um, so he's drawing from a lot of different social psychologists and behavioral economists to come up with that. I look at my role in, in this is to understand this and put it into terms that people can go, oh, I get it, and I see how I can apply it. That I'm, I am kind of a middleman when it, when it comes to this. I don't have a desire to go back and, and get a PhD in, in this. I mean, I think that's wonderful, but I, but I think my strength is assimilating this information and going, oh, I see how we could use it here and here and here, mm -hmm. and then being able to put that out. And I've had a, for lack of a better term, a research lab at the company that I've worked with where I've had a chance to actually put these into practice and see the results that, that it makes. And um, there's two that, that stand out that I'd like to share with you and, and the listeners. One was scarcity, yeah. right? We want more of what we can't have. When we learned about this, I would work on uh, marketing emails with my boss, who was the vice president of sales at the time, and we would actively try to market to insurance agents to say, come on board with us. And our field people, when they'd visit an agency, they'd put in some information in a database. We'd use that to quarterly send information out. Once we learned about scarcity, we realized we had an opportunity. And that was, we didn't look to appoint a lot of agents every year, maybe 50. We were in 28 states, so not even two per state. Okay. And in the third quarter, at the end of the third quarter, we put out our marketing email and we included one more paragraph. And that paragraph would have said, Tim, part of the reason I'm contacting you today is to let you know we're only looking to appoint 50 agents in our 28 operating states. To date, we've appointed 40. We hope you're one of the few remaining that we appoint by year end. After we sent that email, my boss came over and he said, within the hour, he said, I can't believe it. And I said, what? And he goes, I've already had eight agents contact me I've never had any contact me within an hour. And it was just because we put in that one paragraph. It was all true. We had never thought to use it before, but it became a trigger for people to say, not a lot of appointments, not many left. I better get on the phone or send this guy an email if I want an opportunity. That's that, that, that is absolutely tremendous. Uh, I was also wondering, what other things uh, are you bringing, getting back to persuasion, what are the other things that you're bringing into your practice from persuasion? Okay. Um, there was a really interesting study mentioned in the book where marketers were reaching out to people to get their email address in exchange for coupons for free pop. There was a new type of pop that had come out. So imagine, Kurt, that you're walking by and I engage you and I say I'm with a marketing firm and we have a new type of pop and if you're willing to give us your email address, we will send you an email that you can redeem for free samples. Mm -hmm. And when they made that direct approach, it was I think 33% said sure and they gave the email address. Now imagine, Tim, you're walking by but I engage you a little bit differently and I say, excuse me, um, do you consider yourself to be an adventurous person? Somebody who likes to try new things? Well, everybody can think of a time when they were adventurous and tried new things. So everybody said, yeah, sure. Well, you know what? Then you might like to try this new pop. I work with a marketing firm. If you'll give us your email address, we'll send you a coupon. You'll be able to get free samples. And 75% of the people gave email addresses. So they're primed to try something new by the question. And then they become more willing to, to give up the email. So when I read that, right away I thought about what we do in insurance. There's, a, there's a, a big movement toward what's called telematics. That's the device that you can either put in your car or maybe you download an app on your phone, but it tracks your driving habits. Right. 
And there's resistance to that. There's people say things like, I don't want Big Brother watching me. I always think, well, if you've got a cell phone, he's already watching you. <laughs> he's not waiting yeah. for you to plug something in your car. <laughs> That's right. We're, in fact, we're, we're providing the data all yes. the time. So, but, but there's the resistance. Right. And, and uh, so when I work with agents, and how can they overcome that resistance? And my first thought was the question is, Kurt, do you consider yourself to be a good driver, at least better than average? And we already we, we, know we, we, that we answer is Who's going to tell their insurance agent, no, I'm, I'm a bad driver and I'm worse than the average? Yeah, I mean, and, there, and you know there's all kinds of psychology that everybody thinks they're better than average. We can't all be better than average, but we all think we're better than average. And so that single question, getting somebody to say, yeah, I'm a good driver, I'm better than average. And then that agent can step in and there's all kinds of psychology in, in what I teach them, but they can step in and, and talk about, well then you know what, Kurt, you're probably paying more than you need to. So I'm gonna invoke some scarcity. Because here's the reality, that good drivers like you are subsidizing poor drivers. But there's some technology now that will track your specific driving habits and it would allow you to get the rate that you deserve. I'm recommending all my customers, consensus, I'm recommending all my customers try it mm -hmm. because you can save anywhere from 10 to 50%. You don't want to overpay by 50%, do you, Kurt, right? More scarcity. <laughs> so I'm, but I'm having this conversation to try to get you to, to try something that I know as an insurance agent will probably be in your best interest long-term because if you save 10, 15, 20, 30%, you're gonna be real happy. Right, And that's what I want to get you to, but I have to get you past that fear of this new technology. And that's why I never use the word new either, because when it comes to new technology, people tech will back away. They're afraid, well, what if it doesn't work? But I just talk about there's technology that you can put in your car and it'll tr track your driving habits and give you the rate that you deserve. Insurance is one of those complex decisions. You know, this, is a, this is a place where we... Uh, especially health insurance, but but also in auto and home, and these are these are complex um, policy-related things that are going to have a big impact on our life. That we don't th we don't make these decisions frequently. So having this kind of coaching uh, available, this is a great application. I think Brian, this is a terrific application of this kind of um, approach. You know, uh, is is to help people make better decisions to right. act, to make decisions in their best self-interest. I always say. Nobody ever said after they had a loss, darn, my insurance agent sold me the right coverage in the right amount. Right, <laughs> <laughs> I thought that happened all the time. But a lot of them have said, darn, my agent didn't sell me the right coverage or the right amount, now I'm paying a lot more out of, out of pocket. Yeah. That I, as I told the group that I worked with here in Minneapolis the other day, your goal isn't to make more money and make more sales. Your goal is to help your customers have the protection that they need. And when you do that, then you reap the rewards of doing that well. And, and when you also layer that with that you truly care about them because you're engaging on liking and reciprocity, that's where they start telling other people, you need to go see Tim, you know, you need to go see Kurt, they're great. Yeah, by the way, I, I just have to mention, I did a workshop on Monday with a, with a client and uh, I, I was trying to get them involved in the idea that we have these biases, you know, and, and that most of us have these beliefs that aren't necessarily accurate. And so I asked them for a show of hands of how many people are better than average drivers. And almost everyone in the room raised their hands. It was just, it was perfect. It was just perfect. I'm like, okay, so we're dealing with a segment of the population here that is absolutely above normal. <laughs> and then they laughed. And it happens every time when we do that. I mean, we've used <laughs> yeah. that before. So, and, and I do want to say, so today, um, 
I think that you are self-priming yourself to a little degree. You are yes. you are wearing your hat. I am. Uh, which is your creative uh, hat that you are now uh, telling yourself that you have. Uh, Absolutely. You're a sock guy. I'm a hat guy. I, what I, what kind wearing, of socks are you? I am wearing my, my magic shock socks Are, are today. you? Yeah. Are you? Person riding a, a, a shark. So okay, uh, yeah, I go, and that's pretty magical. Brian, did happens. you prime yourself at all? Are you? I do. You, do you, do you I, use clothes or uh, music? I, or I, I, like I, yeah, all of those. When I get ready to do a public presentation, my method of getting ready now is I will practice out loud every day for a month before while I'm running on my treadmill. Okay, because that forces me to work on my breathing. It forces me to know my material cold but it makes me feel like I'm getting ready for an athletic event. And I used to, you know, when I was in high school and afterwards competed in, in various things, but I, I, I love thinking about the day of this and this is an event and, you know, watching my diet a little bit and, and getting in shape and just, I wanna feel like a racehorse that's in the gate that just can't wait for the gate to be open. And, and I do that too with music. I, I have certain playlists that I listen to, but I, I am really trying to get myself excited. And then that day, you know, when I put on a really nice suit, I feel like it's game day versus practice, you know, how you felt in school. You put your uniform on, right? right? So now you're out of your practice sweats and you're now into yep. the, uniform. the uniform and you're going out there and it's now it's, yeah. it's time to perform. So all of these things for me, I think, ultimately give a better experience to the people who have given their time or their money to come to this event, but it also makes me enjoy it that much more. I mean, I'm just like jacked up and ready to go, and so that's how I prime myself. And tell us more about your own music lists. Tell us more about your playlists. <laughs> oh, you, Sorry. You, you I, led right into that, you, Ryan. You just opened yourself like, up oh, on that. All of a sudden, you, you well, softballed for Tim. I have, I have playlists for, for different things. Um, the one that I will say in terms of the priming, too, I have a playlist. It's called Jane. That's my wife. And it's all the songs that make me think well of her. And I will listen to that, you know, on a Friday driving home from work because I want to be in a romantic mindset. And I know that when I walk in the door and I've done that, she responds differently to me. And when I... As compared to when you haven't listened to that. Or, or if I've listened to something that's hard driving, you know, yeah. that just has me feeling differently. I tell people that in terms of, you know, building some liking too, that there's so many things that you can choose to do. I have a playlist for my daughter that, you know, make me think about Abigail. And when I listen to that, you know, I can hardly wait to see her. I've got my running playlist, my workout playlist. I've got a training playlist that I will play, uh, you know, in between during breaks or something like that if I'm doing training. And to the music on that one, that ranges anywhere from Frank Sinatra to Coldplay. Okay. And I've gotten a lot of compliments because it just seems to hit something for everybody. And, and they're usually well-known songs. So if I've got, you know, maybe some um, Glenn Campbell, too, and people are like, oh, I remember that song. And then maybe you've got some Boston. And it, so it's kind of all over the place, but it's familiar. Wow. wow. And, and that's used in, in that group setting, right? Mm -hmm. When you are, are trying to have the, the people that are at that session mm -hmm. uh, come up and show up in a certain way. And I, I think music in those is often, it's, it's one of those things that I know people bring and they use. I don't know if they do it as purposefully as they should, um, just to what you're talking about. What are you trying to elicit? What are the types of attitudes and 
that you're trying to get them or the feelings or mood that you're trying to get them into. And I love that fact of you, you're bringing in this diverse component and probably music that is more, um, has some history with people, mm -hmm. right? And so, yep. yeah. When Do I went out to Arizona and I went through the train the trainer for the workshop on persuasion, and the name of the workshop is called Moment Maker. Okay. And so when I saw that, I thought, I'm gonna make a playlist. And, and I had about a dozen songs that either had um, the word moment or time in it because the, the acronym that we use in the workshop is time. And I started playing it and it caught everybody off guard a little bit. You know, even though we were all talking about persuasion, they're like, what's that? And I'm like, I'm persuading you. Persuading <laughs> <laughs> the persuaders. But they, but they loved it. I mean, because they were, for the most part, they were all recognizable songs, but we were all, I mean, we kept hearing, you know, moment in songs or time. And that's what we were talking about is how do we structure these, these moments uh, so people can be more effective in their ability to persuade. And, and uh, anyway, it's, I, so I use a lot of different music like that. I love that. Do you, do you edit these playlists a lot? Or, or pretty much when they're set, it's, it's kind of done and you just keep, keep I, I keep tweaking. Every now and then I hear a song, I'm like, oh gosh, I forgot about that song. And I'll drop it into a playlist. And yeah, good. Typically what I do first is I drop a song into my playlist that I, it's just called Favorites. And, and I will listen to it to death because it just, <laughs> because it just brings up good memories for me. And I'm like, I haven't heard that song in, in a while. And then as I listen to it more, I might say, yeah, that'd be perfect for the training playlist, or that would be, you know, it reminds me of Jane. I'm going to put that also in, in the playlist for her. So I, I wouldn't say that I'm a big music guy because I don't play instruments or anything like that. Um, but I, there are certain songs that I just want to hear because I realize how they make me feel. I don't know. I think to have all these different playlists for all these very different uh, situations, I think that's more than the average bear. I think I think you're, you're higher on the uh, into music scale than you would than you're giving yourself credit for. Oh. I, I, I I will say that I am going to make an Aaron playlist. Yeah. I, I I I love that idea of just making a playlist and then I should probably make one for both of my kids too yeah why not and, and be positive about my, that well my my list my playlist for my wife Katie is called dinner is <laughs> well no I, I'm not being sarcastic I'm being serious because because that, I wouldn't get to play that playlist very much <laughs> Because what, like we, we like to make dinner and in, eat dinner together and we don't get to do it all the time but when we we have that time that's that's what I like to, to play because it, it's all that ooh, all the warm and fuzzy stuff you mm -hmm. know you know we got a little Marvin Gaye we got a little Frank Sinatra you know all that yummy stuff basically for oh. for mm -hmm. the food experience you know a nice thing about that too though Kurt is you make a playlist for her and and she realizes it and she's like none of my friend's husband make playlists for me <laughs> or for, the, for, for their spouse and 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 that stuff it gets around I mean I I adore my wife and I am, you know, whenever she does something, I put it out on Facebook. Like yep. she, you know, I, I see your little bar over there. Yep. She built a scotch bar for our house. I'll show you a picture later. It's she, awesome. She built? She designed it and she built it. it and then it, we had out some. Of, out of wood? I mean. Wooden pipe. Yeah. She had. Wow. And, and so when she does something like that, I put it out and I'm like, you know, Jane's awesome. And, and people see this and. We were together once with a number of her friends, and they all said, 
my husband, my boyfriend would never post anything like that about me. <laughs> and I'm like, why wouldn't you? I mean, it's, you know, when I give her those accolades and she feels good and then she responds back to me, that's a, it's a self-positive, you know, rather than the, the downward spiral that people get in the tit for tat, this is the positive side. But giving people their due because they do some things like that is really, really important. Well, and it goes back to that gratitude component, right? I think in, in the psychology research talking about how much gratitude and having gratitude mm -hmm. is such a positive impact on our life. Right. And so you're actually showing that gratitude mm -hmm. in a very public and, and positive way, not just keeping it mm -hmm. to yourself, but you're saying, look, this is, am I not the luckiest person in the world? Right. I mean, look at what you know my wife has just done and isn't she fantastic yep. yeah the, the, you know we talked a little bit about reciprocity earlier and you asked you know authority or reciprocity probably one of the most creative and best things i ever did when my wife turned 52 i told her she was going to get a gift that nobody to my knowledge nobody had ever gotten and she was so curious and then i was telling all her friends and they're like holy cow i've never heard of anybody giving that and my gift. Wait, wait, you, you told her friends in advance of giving yeah, it to Yeah, just to build the excitement. Because <laughs> she, was trying, she was trying to figure it out. So, But when you hear the number 52, what comes to mind for you? 52 weeks in the year. Bingo. So yeah. I gave her a gift a week for a year. Wow. And they weren't real expensive things, but it always said, I'm thinking of you. And the cool thing was my daughter got involved with it. So we might be at the mall, and she's like, oh, Dad, Mom really wants this, but she didn't want to spend the money on herself. So I'd get it. I usually would have, like five, six, seven gifts wrapped and ready, ready to go. To go yeah. And I'd bring them up from the basement in, a, in this big container and let her choose. And then, you know, I didn't have to buy things for three or four weeks. And then all of a sudden things, so I got to really do it spur of the moment. What am I thinking about? I didn't feel it's pressure to have to go buy things. But obviously she loved it. I mean, every Saturday or Sunday when I brought that up, she loved it. It just made her feel special. It was made me feel great because how you feel when you give. My daughter got involved. And then interesting enough, interestingly enough, some people who found out, they're like, well, will you post that every week on Facebook? I want to see what you're giving her. So I would post <laughs> a little video every single week, and then people would comment. And um, But that's a, an opportunity to impact somebody else who might go, hey, I'm going to do that for, for my spouse, or I'll do that for my kid, or I'm going to take that idea and make a variation of it. But the reciprocity, I didn't do that to get anything from my wife, but I know this, that she is more than happy to do things to help me. Yeah. So here's a question for you. Oh, before you do that, though, just everybody, my next birthday, I'm turning 52. So Aaron, if you're listening to this podcast, I'd be okay with it. You know, there you go. Sorry. Go ahead, Tim. Knowing that there would be a gift f waiting for her every Saturday or Sunday? Month, mm -hmm. month, every month, right? One uh, every week. Yep. Did she start playing the, I know that Christmas is coming, I'm going to start looking for the gifts? Did she, did she ever get into, I'm going to go searching? No, no, she, she didn't. Um, Man, the, she's much stronger than I am, I'll tell you. <laughs> <laughs> Holy cow, it was, I would... It, it was it was interesting when I gave her the the gift on her birthday. We were at my mom's and she opened it up and she didn't quite get it at first. And then she did and she called me outside and she said, "I don't want you to do this." And I'm like, "Why not?" Ooh. She goes, "I don't deserve this. I don't want Ooh. you to do this." And I'm like, "Who wakes up on a Saturday and says I deserve 52 gifts <laughs> this year coming up?" You know, <laughs> and um, but it was kind of overwhelming. But but then once we got going, she just so appreciated it and just looked forward to it. Now, self-interest was, 
it didn't matter how bad I was all week. <laughs> I'd say, here's a gift. And she was like, all happy. So I always, I got out of some jams now and then. <laughs> well, double bonus bundle. Yeah, yeah. Okay. But it, well, and, and one more thing I'll say too, is it, it's, I think it was really great for my daughter to see this. I mean, yeah. to get her, to allow her to see like, gosh, this is how my dad treats my mom. And the expectation that she'll have when she's with, uh, you know, dating somebody. Yeah. I feel sorry for her uh, future husband. So, you know, that's a high high bar to to meet. I think what's interesting, too, about that, though, is how you talked about you bundled buying those gifts and with your daughter and you're out. And so the hard thing is I will be, you know, in May and I'm out with Aaron and she will say, oh, that's really cool. And I go, oh put that in the back of my head for her birthday, which is in December. And come De- come actually June, it's out of my brain. Right. And so the ability to just be in that moment and to capture and to be able to get those, I think those gifts are probably, while they might be small, probably more meaningful in some ways than maybe that gift that you're, the week before her birthday, going out and going, mm. ah, what do I got to get? So. Yeah. Well, in the, in the workshop, when we talk about what, what makes a... Uh, giving more powerful we say you know when it's meaningful meaning more is better Mm -hmm. Uh, when it's customized to that person and when it's unexpected well she didn't expect that and and everything was customized to her and there was meaning because there were so many of them so it just it hit on all on everything and i don't know it's things like that that i think make for a much happier household i mean she felt special and and she reciprocates by making me feel special in ways that are meaningful to me we see that in uh, in in the the business world in recognition when uh, people recognize each other, whether it's a boss recognizing a subordinate mm-hmm. or it's peer to peer recognition, uh, that meaningful, customizable, and um, and unexpected are really important. The other element that's that makes it a little different in the business world is who the giver is makes a difference as well. And sure. I'm not sure if, if how important that is in, in the gift giving that you, you, you see, because if, if I have a, if I have a relationship with, with you that, Oh man, we are great coworkers together. We're, you know, we hang out a lot and then, and then you take time to recognize me in something that's meaning, meaningful mm-hmm. and, and very specific and relevant to me mm-hmm. uh, and unexpected. That means a lot. But if you and I have a contentious relationship, then that can, you know, can kind of sour things. Does does relationship uh, or uh, you know perspective of the other person play into this? I, right? I think that I think that when you the more the relationship that you have, I think the the better it's received, right? If you have a contentious relationship and somebody does something, you might think like, okay, what do you want? You know, but I think when there's already relationship there, it, it tends to mean more. And it makes me think about a a situation I had where when I had started working for State Auto Insurance early on, I worked for a lady named Dorothy. Dorothy was very much a rah-rah kind of cheerleader type manager, and it didn't really resonate with me. Having grown up playing football, and you guys know what coaches are like in the locker room. That's what I was used to being motivated, and so it didn't really resonate with me. But then many, many years pass, and you realize you you can't treat people in business like coaches in a locker room. And I had so much more appreciation for Dorothy's approach, so I felt like I owed it to her to tell her that, and I sent her an email, and put in there, you know, Dorothy, I didn't appreciate really your management style, but now I recognize how good it is. And if I wasn't working for John, there's only a few people I'd want to work for and you'd be one of them. And, and I put other things in there. She told me when she read it, she cried. Yeah. Wow. And it just indicated to me that people do not say thank you and they do not give praise enough. Um, and that was quite a while ago. And obviously it's not left me, but here was a really interesting thing. Then time passes 
and I'm assigned to be her business coach. I didn't have to do anything to build trust. She knew how I felt about her when there was nothing on the line. And so I tell people, when you have those good thoughts, act on them. You know, when you think, oh yeah, that was so nice that, that Joe did that. Don't let it reside just in your mind. Make sure that you tell Joe, you never know where it's going to lead. And one more example was, there was a, a woman uh, named Becky who worked in what's the State Auto University, and she took over for somebody in terms of helping me, and she was doing a great job. Anytime I asked for something, she got it quickly. If it wasn't right, she got it squared away. So I sent a note to her manager and told her how much I appreciated Becky. Her manager said, do you mind if I share that with Becky? I said, no, not at all. I said, I just want you to know, though, how happy I am with what she's doing. The next time I saw Becky walking down the hall, she lit up when she saw me. Now, several years went by, and I've now been her boss for the last two and a half years. Oh, interesting. I didn't have to do any. She knew what was on the. Uh, she knew how I felt about her before there was anything on the line because I was taking time to respond to things that were happening and not letting myself forget them or just let it reside in my mind. It's really interesting. I've done a lot of work with managers in looking and helping to coach them around motivation and various different things. And your your point that you talked about at the very beginning is I think there's this this dichotomy in managers, it's probably bigger than that, but there are those managers who, who understand that there's this relationship that needs to be, um, you know, nurtured, that needs to have a purposeful identity around it, that you are actually thinking about how you're interacting mm -hmm. and, and again, recognizing them at the appropriate time, uh, you know, and not just being that football mm -hmm. coach who, you know, the only thing you're doing is slamming your clipboard down and saying, you guys missed this assignment and do better and, and get on there. I'm not saying that that's how all football coaches are, but uh, but that's the other side of that, that component is you are either very analytical and technical and, and you're only focused in on results and process versus that human side. And that human side has a big impact. And I think a lot of organizations culturally miss that, so. Absolutely. I, I was very fortunate that the individual I reported to for many, many years was really, really good about making sure that when people did things, other people knew, you know, maybe it was his peers or the senior level people. But, you know, we learn so much by what we see and what we experience. And so I was able to adopt that. And so with my team, I always made sure to let him know and other people know when they did a great job. And they so appreciated that. Yeah particularly when they don't get it. So Brian, if you had to give two or three short pieces of advice for our listeners to some things that might help them uh, either in their work or life, uh, can you think of two or three maybe kind of ideas that they could just take and start implementing sure. after listening to this? I, I, I would say focus on the principle of liking. Okay. To not to get people to like you, but to come to like other people. And how do you do that? How, I mean, what, what are some of the tricks to, to doing that? Well, two, two things will cause somebody to like you when you find out you have things in common, right? You cheer for the same sports team, all of a sudden you're a good guy, right? Because you cheer for my team. Or when you pay somebody a genuine compliment, they feel good. Okay. So, so those would both make you probably like me a little bit more, Kurt. But the reality is when I find out you cheer for the same team that I do, 
I like you a little bit more. Mm -hmm. And when I pay you a genuine compliment, I think more highly of you. And so I always tell people your strategy for using this psychological principle should not be to get others to like you, but it should be to recognize I will come to like them more if I look for what we have in common and if I look for what I can praise them on and I want to go in and I want to like the people that I work with and support. So I would say that's one. So it's actively looking for those things in common, actively searching for things that you can genuinely compliment them for. Absolutely. Okay. Um, another one I would say would be becoming an authority at what you do. The more that somebody views you as having expertise, the more they will come to you, the more they'll lean on you for advice and that will help make you much more valuable to whoever you deal with or whomever you work with. So really finding something that you're passionate about and saying, I wanna become one of the best people in the world at, at this and, and doing that and then sharing that knowledge with other people so that you can be helpful would be a second thing I would encourage people to do. That's terrific. Cool. All right. Yeah. Oh, and I'll, I'll give you one more, the third. Oh, no, 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 yeah? no, sorry, we're gone. <laughs> uh, we're off. No. no, I want the bonus. <laughs> yeah. I, I want to know. The bonus would be the, uh, we talked about earlier, the principle of consistency. Stop telling people what to do and start asking. Yeah. Make a conscious effort to those things that you need them to do instead of telling them, asking them. But I would always say this too, be ready to hear no and what will you do if you hear no? So here's a personal example. Our daughter, like many teenagers, and she's now 22, but when she was a teenager, it was not uncommon, to, my wife maybe, to say, Abigail, empty the dishwasher. And then Abigail takes off for school and hasn't emptied the dishwasher. And we get home from work later and because she's not back. Dishwasher's not empty. And we might go to bed. She's a late night person. So she comes home, but we get up and dishwasher not empty. And you know, if you've raised kids, you know how that conversation is going to go the next morning. It's going to go great. What do you mean? I think I'm, I'm, I'm so looking forward to that conversation. <laughs> and and I would, I would instead of telling, I would just say, Abigail, would you please empty the dishwasher before you leave for school? And if she says, no, Dad, I can't. I'm in a rush. I'm like, okay, wait. Will you empty it as soon as you get home from school before you leave for work? In other words, I was ready with a concession, and we teach that as a practical application of reciprocity. But I'm, I'm ready to hear no, and what will I do if I hear no? So I... Oh, go ahead. I, I would just say this. Anticipating no is not being pessimistic. It's being strategic. Right. And we talked with Annie Duke and talking about probabilistic thinking, right? And, you know, yeah. we, we tend to fall into this 100% or 0%. In mm -hmm. reality, almost all of life is somewhere in between. And so you, you're being, as you said, being more accurate in your thinking about how this possibility is. Mm -hmm. I was interested when you talked about, you know, how you were thinking of responding to, to your daughter you phrased it as a when-then statement, mm -hmm. which I know is one of the big things that, that again, is, is some of that component, is setting up that situation of, and you can do this for yourself, and obviously in thinking through how you can respond to others, when this happens, then you can do this, right. and mm -hmm. it sets up that, again, activating some of those neural circuits, so, all right, I am home from school now, mm -hmm. before work, oh yeah, I need to empty that dishwasher. That was this trigger right. that probably happened. And if I don't, if I didn't set some kind of time frame, will you please empty the dishwasher? Sure. And then she's two days later, well, I didn't tell you when I would. <laughs> right? I'm, gonna, right. I'm gonna empty it. That's, that's the problem with my kids. You know? <laughs> it's like, all right. Brian, this was fantastic. Thank you so much. 
It's um, been a pleasure having you here. And yeah. I'm and glad it worked out. I'm glad that I got to be out here in Minneapolis and that we were able to get this changed. Yeah. This was a lot more fun yes. than over the phone. Way, <laughs> yes, it, way more. And yeah. you get to be in the studio. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, Sarita, if you're listening to this. Um, we apologize that you weren't able to be here. So thank you, Brian. You're welcome. Welcome to our grooving session, where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our Behavioral Grooves interview, have a free-flowing discussion on some of those topics, and whatever else comes into our influence-focused brains. Are you priming me on that? It's a beautiful day outside, and you are so oh. happy, <laughs> and you want to be nice I, to me. Yeah, I, that's not really priming. I, but I, No, it's not. Actually, that's like pixie dust, and, <laughs> and there's, I wish the listeners could see that the studio is just filled with pixie dust right now. <laughs> pixie dust here. Yeah, yeah it's, it's not the alcoholic uh, beverages that we're drinking, so that's not <laughs> I it. I wish we were. All right, now I wish we were. Uh, so, Tim. What was of interest um, from Brian's Brian's conversation? Well, first, let me just say, Brian is such a cool guy. I he mean, is. He absolutely, his passion for his work comes through loud and clear, and um, that is uh, admirable and inspiring. It really, is. It really, really enjoyed uh, talking with him, and it was so great to have him here in the studio. Yes. Uh, that, w- that was really cool. Seriously, I, I, I really enjoyed that. Um, but what, what struck me most is that Brian cares so deeply for the ethical application of the, of the six principles. So it's not just about manipulating people. It's really, uh, it's absolutely about using these principles to, you know, do better at your job. Right. But not at the expense of everyone who is, you know, who, who's going to buy from you. Right. And I, and I thought that that's. Um, that's something that has been so missing from the uh, corporate sales vernacular, uh, maybe forever. <laughs> you know, I was thinking it, like last five years, 10 years, 50 years, ever. Yeah. Uh, to be an ethical person when in, in your selling process is so great. Well, and I think that that comes through from Cialdini himself because he wrote, he wrote Influence, is my understanding, that to, to help people protect themselves from these influence uh, principles that were being kind of fostered upon them by sales and marketing groups. Yeah. And so it's the ability to identify and to understand that, hey, you don't have to fall for these so-called tricks. Um, <laughs> right, right. Isn't, isn't that interesting? And now, Brian, it, it, or now all these years later, yeah. right, it's, it's actually becoming a way to help salespeople sell in an ethical fashion. In to, an ethical. To, to think about and be uh, cognizant, not and even more than just cognizant of, to actually take the the other side and bring them into the equation and say, well, how would it feel if, if I were, you know, getting manipulated in this way? Well, I don't want to be manipulated. Nobody wants to be manipulated. Nobody wants to be manipulated, but it's the factor of thinking through. So like he was talking about, liking, being one of those, you know, common or pr- one of the principles. But it's about genuinely liking what, the person, the, looking for those things to like in others, which is only a positive component. It really is. And it's a big challenge. It is a big challenge. <laughs> you know, I mean, sometimes you're with people who are just not, in, 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 you know, that we just don't have good chemistry with, right? Right. Like every time I'm with you, it's just amazing <laughs> how much I have to force myself but, to go, God, what do I like about Tim? I got to find something. Can I just tell you, you do a great job of it, though. <laughs> 
you are so good at, 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 at pretending. Is, is pretending a good word? You know, I must fake it till I make it or whatever <laughs> that, that comment is. Anyway, we digress. Well, but, but okay, so staying with liking, you know, this whole idea of, um, of really put, making a commitment to yourself to like other people, to find commonalities, to, to look at, at them and be able to compliment them in a way it actually helps, right? It does. You, you know, I mean, the, the 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 psychological research on this is robust, and the idea of getting into a room, getting into a situation with someone who you could be at odds with, and then looking for that thing that you like about them, and if you do that on a consistent basis, your relationship with them is going to change and, and change for the positive. I think it is a powerful component, and it goes in along with reciprocity, right? And so the story he told about using reciprocity with his daughter for mowing the grass, right? And, right. and mm-hmm. giving the, giving the uh, uh, you know, up in the allowance prior to, you know, asking the, the, without, the give. That's right? right. Without the heavy hand saying, well, now that I'm giving you more, you know, there's going to be more that's going to be asked of you or there, nothing quid pro quo about that. Right. And so there's a component of that. You can go, well, isn't that a little bit manipulative? But then you think, he could have just been the authoritarian and and said, yeah. yes, here you're going to do it and you're not going to get an increase. Or he could have done the quid pro quo. But in this way, it may be a little manipulative, but it got, got his daughter to be thinking about it in a different way. And actually the way that it was processed in her brain is very different. And so now right. she is actually... Yeah, I feel like this this need to, to to help out, and probably in the long run is going to have a much longer lasting impact on on her behavior. When you were growing up, did you ever have those things that uh, the, the chores around the house that you absolutely dreaded? Oh yes. Okay. Did you have any chores around the house that you just really looked forward to? Um. No. Yeah. Right. <laughs> who 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 in their right mind has chores or you know that they're obligated to do that they're looking forward to. Right. And and simply by taking that obligation away, I think Brian did a really cool thing that he he engaged his daughter in this conversation in this life experience without that something that would last with her you know for forever. You know, I think about, so I, I grew up on a farm, you know, <laughs> and, and for me, cleaning, you know, actually going down to the, to the barn and shoveling the manure out of the, st- out of the, the stalls of yeah. the horses was really ugly and dirty and uncomfortable and unpleasant work. I did not look, look forward to it. Now, maybe, I don't know if my dad ever had the persuasive ability to do something like Brian had. Uh, it's hard to create that, but... I, I have forever have this unpleasant experience and this memory of, you know, shoveling the manure out of the, the stalls. Oh, and I thought my life was bad because I had to sweep the stairs down to the basement <laughs> from a little dust. And I was like, oh, I hate this. But you had to shovel manure. Oh, yeah. Well, the shows in... <laughs> have you ever seen how much manure horses create, by the way? I have not. I think we're rabbit-holing here. I think we are. So, okay, what, what, what struck you, Kurt? Priming. We had a long conversation yeah. on priming and the replicability crisis and yeah. various different pieces. And, you know, it, it's, it's really one of those topics that I just have... I, I just want to learn more about because I think it's really powerful. I think that there are ways that we can do it again ethically and there are lots of things that get primed that we are just unaware of well it's happening all the time right it is happening all of the time 
And so in, in those moments, right, when it's, it's happening, are we doing it purposefully? Um, is it purposefully being done to us or is it being done accidentally? This, th that's a really good question. Like if we have the ability to, for lack of a bird, better word, manufacture an environment that primes us for certain things, uh, just like Brian talked about with music. Right. Like if, if we're going to, if we're going to be primed, why not take the bull by the horns? Why not actually have some control over it? Well, and I think the, here's the, the, the couple pieces I'm priming that I'm, I'm, I'm just learning more about. And so I'm, uh, you know, it's one of these things, we still have priming volume two that we have to do. And so this might be part of that conversation coming up. But priming is one of those things that is very contextual in nature. That in other words, what primes me may not prime you because the neural networks that are represented by the prime, in other words, that are activated by the prime in my brain, I see a snake. I, I have a certain response to that snake based on my past experience with snakes and my you know, lifelong experience in, in, in other things. You may have a very different response to that. So the, pri the, the, the prime of a snake for me might have a different response than it does for you. Right. And so they're very individual. So they're very idiosyncratic. And so the fact of the matter is, is being able to create that environment in which you're primed for whatever it is and you're purposely doing it, I think it has a, a lot of potential power. Yeah, uh, th that's a that's a great point, Kurt. And, and uh, I, I'm going to reference the, our first podcast on priming in our in our show notes because I think that 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 might be interesting, especially with the discussion about socks yeah. that we keep coming back to because it's such a powerful story. I know, and it's such a real story because we both uh, uh, like because of you, I've gotten into the the prime sock thing. <laughs> I have. <laughs> I mean, socks are awesome. Here, here's what I was thinking. We, okay, so. We're going to digress again. Okay. <laughs> I'm warning people, you can just tune this out and write your comment or whatever it is about, <laughs> God, get off of the damn sock conversation and you can leave that going. No, so it we, um, uh, so my company, we presented at a, at a conference and as the little chit chat things that you give away, we at gave the, at the booth, at, at, the, the, booth, yeah. at the conference, we trade show, right? Um, we gave away t-shirts um, that had a priming message on them. We gave away underwear that had a priming message on them, and we gave away socks that have a priming message on them. Socks were the first, actually, T-shirts were the first to go. We produced the least of those. They cost the most, so they were the first to go. Okay. <laughs> but, the, but the socks were the second to go. Oh, because people, as they came through the booth and you had these conversations, they could choose. They could choose, and yeah. so they got to choose. So the socks were, and the socks went faster than any of the other ones. It was just the... Shirts were the first to go because we had the least amount because yeah, they cost the most. But produce. do you think that that might have had something to do with most people don't get their underwear at trade shows? Now, that could be. <laughs> I mean, is that a possibility? It could be. But here's my – actually, <laughs> we still digress. Here's my thought on that is socks are actually those things from a priming perspective that they – Underwear are totally hidden once you put them on, right? You're um, not gotcha. you're not yes. seeing the underwear to be primed in the middle of the day as you're sitting down to the to the meeting, and that you need to be creative in. You're not going to go, oh wait, uh, you know, I, I I see that. 
Socks, on the other hand, you put your foot up on your, you know, rested on your knee or, or however it cross is. Cross your legs. Cross your legs. Yeah. Just by chance, kind of somebody notices the, the funky socks and says something. And there are these, these unexpected moments where you get the little boost of the prime. You're speaking from personal experience. I here. am definitely speaking from yeah. personal experience. Yeah. And so, so I think that there's something to that. And again, <laughs> it was a rabbit hole to go down. And you can end your comments on, you know, get off of the socks <laughs> perspective here and just get on with something actually important to talk about. Okay, well, I want to get back to the six, uh, of the six per, uh, principles of persuasion. Yes. Uh, I want to talk about the fifth one, uh, consistency. Mm. Because I think that this gets underplayed. And uh, Brian, uh, you know, spoke to this uh, as he was talking about it. He said, you know, it's um, ask, don't tell. Mm -hmm. And what came to my mind is, um, as a songwriter, there's, um, there's sort of a, a thing within the songwriting community that when you're writing a song, it's it's show don't tell. It's 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 tell the story, but without telling someone the story. It's you you paint a picture of the story, uh, and and so this idea of of using this ask don't tell. In other words, you tell me the story. I'm, if we're if we're in conversations, you tell me the story. I'm going to use the Socratic method to, for you to tell me the story. I think that that is really cool. This idea that that it's not about me telling you. I'm not going to tell you, okay, these are the things I'm going to do and I'm going to persuade you and I'm going to, you know, be rigorous and blah, blah, blah. It's, uh, we're going to have a conversation about it. I, it's interesting because I, I get that, but then I see consistency from my perspective and I am not the expert on this. Is but right that now you are because you're on a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and you're talking, and I'm not, so you're the expert. <laughs> shh, shh. Who's talking here? <laughs> so consistency <laughs> is this component of getting, uh, making sure that you're you're consistent in your in the way that you talk and in your thinking and in all of these things, and particularly in that social or outward facing components. So yeah. again. I have, and we just went to a thing on politics last night, and it was one of the things that we didn't necessarily talk about in that politics uh, conversation about you know, polarization that's going on, but one of the things that was mentioned in there was that we are moving further and further apart in the two parties and kind of having overlap and like, and one of the interesting things that he showed up was you know, uh, how much you would dislike if your son or daughter married outside of your political party and yeah. the changes from the 60s yeah. where it wasn't a big deal at all. It was like 5% in 1969 that it would have upset people. Only 5% of people would have felt upset in 1969. Yeah. And, and what was the number in 2017? It was 47 or 48%. So it was huge, right? Yeah. But, and we digress again. The, the consistency component is I have made my initial kind of component towards a particular party whether that be Republican or Democratic. And now I need to be consistent in, in that moving forward, regardless of policy platforms and how much I like it. Right, so I might actually disagree, or I might have previously disagreed on a policy basis. Um, and uh, this, this professor pointed out, there's a lot of that, both on the Republican and Democratic side. There's a yeah. lot of inconsistencies in the policy side. But because it's the tribal identity with 
with the party, it's about staying with the party and not with the, the policy things that I believe in. Right, and so there's this component of confirmation bias, there's motivated reasoning, but I think there's also this power of this being consistent with particularly my outward expression of this that lends itself into people kind of digging their heels in and saying, no, this is, this is the way and, and everybody over there is wrong. Um, you know, it's one of those, those interesting things. So I'm going to go back to show, don't tell. Show, don't tell. Walk the walk. Walk the walk. Yeah. I'm, I'm kind of dragging that around, but yeah. All yeah, right. Okay. <laughs> uh, what, what, else, uh, what else struck you? You know, um, I, I, the other piece is... We, did we finish talking about primes? You, you, we you, talked about primes. Okay. We, we, we've, right. we've dragged primes through <laughs> the proverbial, mud, proverbial, proverbial mud enough. So um, I like that. There you go. Uh, no, I think I think we're good. I know that you're gonna want to go into music somehow. How did you know that? I just have this feeling. Really? Yeah. So okay. because I'm trying to find things I like about you, <laughs> <laughs> and music happens to be one of those. So we we talked a little bit about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Oh, right? yes. You know, yeah, you know yeah. because that's you know Brian's backyard. Yeah, more more or less. Uh, is there anybody in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame that you think shouldn't be there? Or is there someone that who's not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame that you think ought to be there? Hmm. If I actually knew who is in the Rock and Hall, <laughs> Roll Hall of Fame, this might be a better question. Well, this, However, this, I, I, okay. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take this question and move it in a different way. There was, there's always those lists that come out like of the like saying who should be in and who shouldn't be in and all of those kind of things. And I can't remember who did it, but they ranked like the, of however, 300, 400 people in, in, in the rock and roll yeah. role. Oh my God, rock and roll hall of fame. And the one that they said has no reason to be in there was queen. And I was like sitting there and I just, I had this gut reaction Bitch to slap back them to uh, London. I, I was, mean, come on. I was queen. like going queen, queen definitely needs to Ryan. be in there. Yeah. The, the way they harmonized the, the, the Brian songs that they playing. had yeah. uh, were just yeah. amazing. Yeah. I mean, a number one hits B influencing musicians for you know years afterward actually to this day yeah so so yeah that was i was i was not really sure about why they would say queen didn't belong yeah that's so interesting yeah yeah well there was a lot of argument when uh, john bon jovi was was brought into the rock and roll hall of fame uh you know especially when you think other people in the rock and roll hall of fame have had who've had careers almost as, as long as he's been alive mm -hmm. and have, and uh, he sold a lot of records, but he hasn't sold as many as, you know, some of these really great hall of famers. Right. So, uh, so there was some controversy around that and, um, and people, and Todd Rundgren comes to mind as a guy who has really made a significant contribution to, to the lexicon of music, to what what works. I mean, uh, before Stevie Wonder did songs from the Key of Life and played every instrument on it, before Beck played every instrument on, on his most recent record, right. uh, Todd Rundgren uh, did uh, did all the instruments on on his. Um, uh, the uh, uh, God, now of course I'm drawing a blank. <laughs> I hate this, but you know, so uh, he's an incredibly talented producer. 
musician, songwriter. And um, so I, I guess I'm just making a pitch for Todd. That's really what I'm doing. <laughs> I didn't realize go. I was doing that, but I guess I am. I'm, go Todd, yeah, go. Go Todd, yeah. yeah. What was Todd's famous song? Well, he had, he had a couple. He wrote one that was recorded by England Dan and John Ford Coley called uh, Light of the World, Shine on Me, Love is the Answer. Okay. Love is the Answer. Todd Rundgren wrote that. Okay. Yeah. Um, but um, uh, why, can't, uh, why Can't We Be Friends was, okay. was probably one of his, his bigger bigger tunes. Okay, good. Yeah. All right. And uh, seeing you as uh, think of me. So, yeah, sorry, I had to go through that in my mind, yeah, so. Well, he is one of those people that you hear the song and you instantly know the song, but you may not know that it's from him. Maybe right? that's it, maybe that's it. Yeah, yeah. and, uh, you know, but, uh, you know, Bon Jovi was an actor, too. He was in Ally McBeal or whatever that was. Was he? Yeah, I don't know, one of those shows. Whatever. Any, <laughs> yeah. He played a painter, and my wife was all over that. So. Was I just? I was probably just discounting him. him. But he's a he's a very talented guy. Well, thanks for listening. Thank you all for tuning in and uh, giving us uh, sharing your time with us and allowing us to share our time with you because we have fun doing it. Thank you. 